Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? I hope. Good. Uh, our speaker today is our own Molly Joe K. Whitehead, also known as Molly Delight. I love her, her middle name is Delight. So she's Molly Delight and she's Molly Joe K. So many of you know her, but not all of you. She, she came with her, Chris um, when we were in Forestville and did the Ongo. And then, went, but she was on her way to Bloomington, Indiana to prepare to ordain with Shohaku Okumura, who was her teacher. So she stayed in Bloomington for several years, was ordained uh, almost 10 years ago, and uh, at some point went to Maine and started a group there. And uh, when her health didn't permit that to continue, she came back to the Bay Area and then found her way up to Sebastopol to us. So we are the beneficiaries of that. Um, she's been an editor and in particular has edited Shohaku, some of Shohaku's books. She edited the Zen teachings of Homeless Kodo in its most recent incarnation and a collection of Dogen's poetry, which has not yet been published, which must be coming close to pub date, I would think, sometime this year. That will, and uh, and as she said, other things that uh, she has amnesia about. <laughs> but uh, so she, her background is a little bit like mine in that way. And here she is now uh, living in Sebastopol and also working on a master's in counseling at Sonoma State uh, with the aim of, of an MFT uh, license, uh, the same path that Dojin took. So good morning, Molly. Over to you. Thank you, Jisho. I hope everyone can hear me. Great, love the nods. <laughs> um, so it's really good to see everyone. Um, it's been way too long. Uh, I've really missed the Sangha. Uh, graduate school swallowed up way more of my energy than I expected over the past school year. Um, and I couldn't seem to balance things. Um, I really uh, only had the energy for that. Um, some of that may have to do with the fact that most of my classmates are half my age and have enviable amounts of energy that I can no longer aspire to. Um, and I think some of it is maybe my own mental problem in that um, while I'm in school, which I will be for the next two years, um, I feel kind of driven to learn as much as I can um, so that I can hopefully be helpful to people later on as a therapist. Um, and since the complexities of the human mind and spirit seem infinite to me, that is a lot of studying. <laughs> so, um, so that's, that's the situation. Um, I was looking forward to this summer uh, as a time to sit more zazen, of course, uh, to reconnect with Sangha and to resume uh, writing on my blog. Um, plus, of course, catching up with friends and, and all the house projects that I had let slide over the year. Then various unexpected events occurred as they do. And I wound up spending time doing a lot of other things instead, um, mostly dealing with health issues and various other uh, 
practical things. Now, unbelievably, school is starting again in a week, and I have no idea how this uh, semester's schedule will go. Um, so I'm so glad to be able to offer you this talk at least, um, and I very much hope that uh, it's useful to you in some way. So I'd like to talk about the times that we're in, but first I need to acknowledge that for me, today is quite a heavy-hearted day. Um, it's the 75th anniversary of America's atomic bombing of Nagasaki, Japan, which happened three days after we dropped the world's first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. The Nagasaki bomb casing was signed <laughs> Sorry. by members of the crew that assembled it. One of them wrote, here's a second kiss for Hirohito, who was Japan's emperor at the time. That bomb 75 years ago today was dropped on a mostly civilian area. In 1946, the American military's official damage map showed the institutional buildings near Ground Zero. Many of these were schools. On that Thursday at 11 in the morning, they were in session. I'm going to read the list as a kind of memorial chant. Nagasaki Prison, Mitsubishi Hospital, Nagasaki Medical College, Jinzei High School, Shiroyama Elementary School, Urakami Cathedral, the Blind and Mute School, Yamazato School, Nagasaki University Hospital, Mitsubishi Boys School, Nagasaki Tuberculosis Clinic, and Keiho Boys School. In Shiroyama Elementary School alone, 1,400 children were killed instantly. Growing up in this country in the 1970s and 80s, I remember December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day, being impressed into our memories at school year after year. But I would guess that most of us probably don't know these dates in August, the 6th and the 9th. I know them only because I lived in Japan for five years, where the anniversaries are marked every year with many events in support of world peace, along with bells, followed by a moment of silence throughout the country at the times the bombs landed. Maybe I remember also because I pulled something to read off my parents' shelves when I was 12 or 13, which happened to be the journalist John Hersey's book, Hiroshima. I've never been able to forget the survivor accounts and the photographs in that book. As nations, we choose to remember and to teach our children what was done to us rather than what we perpetrated on others. Perhaps with the assumption that the first justifies the second. Maybe even more than other countries, ours has been vulnerable to a kind of national superiority complex which for me makes our current situation all the more painful. It becomes 
much more difficult to love our country and ourselves when we are confronted with the ways that we fail and oppress each other. This summer, honestly, my prevailing weather has been exhaustion and dismay. Honestly, I've been kind of shocked or stunned into silence. I've had no words for the casual brutality of our president, our institutions, our racist past and present, our economic system devoted to concentrating the greatest amount of money in the fewest hands. No words even for the hate-filled responses, some of them, to Sonoma County's efforts to help people move off the streets and into safer housing. A line from a song keeps echoing in my head. Everything that happens is from now on. I read that this line was borrowed from Alan Watts, but I couldn't find the reference. At first hearing, it doesn't seem to accord well with the fact of impermanence, although it fits beautifully with Dogen's nonlinear conception of time in which the present includes both past and future. And for me, it speaks to the bizarre mixture of urgency and stuckness that I feel these days, politically, economically, pandemically. Everything that happens is from now on. So everything we do and fail to do matters now and forever. That's a sobering thought. And then there's the feeling, will we never move beyond this place? As a woman working in a store observed to me the other day, it's monotonizing. It makes us feel monotonous, literally one tonal. The strange medical, social, and economic landscape that materialized in March is still here and looks to last quite a bit longer. No one knows how long or how hard it will get. Already it feels like it's lasted a long time, much longer than we expected. And we wonder when things will get back to normal. I've always thought that normal is a bit of a chimera, an idea with no substance, because it's so relative. The same problem presents in psychology all the time. What's a normal amount of anxiety, grief, or anger? Under what conditions? A while back, I saw a list titled Normal Human Responses to the Global Pandemic that do not need to be pathologized or treated as abnormal. This is from a trauma specialist named Sarah Martland. Her catalog of normal responses to a pandemic includes anxiety about money, shelter, food, and other survival needs, generalized fear, anxiety, panic, and overwhelm, obsessive or intrusive thoughts, memories, or fears, resurgence of compulsive or addictive behaviors, depression, dissociation, shutdown, hopelessness, 
feelings of abandonment, loneliness, or isolation, sense of loss of control or powerlessness, past traumas being triggered, thoughts and feelings about death and dying, feelings of anger, irritation, and frustration, feeling exhausted, unmotivated, and lethargic, hyperfocus, surges of energy, and relentless doing to distract, new illnesses or flares of chronic conditions. And at the end of this inventory, the parenthetical phrase, list not exclusive. So these are the experiences that are normal now. I'm sure many of us can find ourselves on this list, probably multiple places at various times. Of course, many of these feelings are normal, even in normal times, although they are sometimes labeled with a diagnosis. Partly because it's much easier for us to label an individual than to investigate the soul of a society or to acknowledge how a society's inequities and abuses may lead people to feel and act in ways that may be normal under those conditions, yet are unacceptable to the society. We resist normalizing pain, especially pain inflicted by human beings on other human beings. <clears throat> which studies say is the single most traumatizing kind of pain. Everything in us rebels against calling this kind of suffering normal because normal also means okay, acceptable. It's strange to think in the face of a so-called novel virus that everything happening now has happened before. Human beings have suffered devastating plagues throughout our tenure on this earth. And also throughout human history, groups of people linked by nationality, religion, race, class, gender, sexual orientation, among other mostly random factors, have systematically and ruthlessly, ruthlessly oppressed other groups of people simply for being other. This summer, I've been reading a few books about the theory and practice of psychotherapy, trying to integrate what I'm learning from Western psychology with Buddhism, since Buddhism is a psychology too, not only a spiritual practice, but also a theory of the mind and how to work with it. Recently, I came across a discussion of the psychology of concern, which seems very relevant to these days. The writer, an existential humanist psychologist named James Bugenthal, views concern as a compass and an energy source that guides and mobilizes our actions. First, he covers our usual understanding of the word, which includes some degree of anxiety and orientation toward the future and questions about one's sense of power to affect a situation and how best to do so. Then he focuses on what he calls therapeutic concern 
or what I think of more generally as transformative concern, the concern that can catalyze change. He lays out four aspects of this kind of concern, pain or suffering, hope, commitment, and inwardness. Eugene Tall asserts that while we may often be unaware of it, hope is almost always hidden somewhere within our anxiety. I have the image of a vein of crystal glimmering deep within a rock. He argues that even despair may have a hopeful aspect because sometimes it's the only thing that will move us toward change. Describing despair as focused and intense concern, he writes, what has happened, although we often do not recognize it at the time, is that we have searched to their apparent limits our present ways of defining who and what we are and what is the nature of the world in which we live. We are confronted with the prospect of making fundamental changes in the way we see ourselves or conceive the world. These are times when the familiar paths are no longer possible. Then we may experience the terrible but freeing effect of despair. It is a liberty dearly purchased, often with what we thought we valued most, but it is a freedom not otherwise to be found. So in this telling, the path to freedom winds through the swamp of despair and necessarily so, because we must give up our ideas of who we are and what our world is. Beliefs in the illusions of safety and separateness. Our delusion that our comfort doesn't rest on others' suffering. On the suffering of not only other people, but of other forms of life as one of our chants has it. So renunciation of these ideas may be the ticket out of despair. What an expensive ticket it is. It costs us seemingly. um, I've tried attending these Zoom meetings with uh, Stone Creek. And she showed email. Continue. Okay. Um, So I was saying (laughs) the ticket out of despair that I certainly have been looking for. um, It's expensive. It costs us everything that we know and rely on and much of what we would like to believe. So Bugenthal concludes when one is forced to confront the necessity of letting go of a cherished part of who one believes oneself to be or of what has always been the way of one's world, a crisis of existence is encountered. So I would call this a crisis of how to be in the world. So what's our solution here? 
Eugene Tall's last two aspects of concern are commitment and inwardness. Commitment could also be called persevering intention or vow. Eugene Tall defines inwardness as the readiness to look within oneself and to forego the temptation to blame others or circumstances. As I was saying earlier, a challenge for nations and also for individuals. Depth psychology, which is a contemporary descendant of Carl Jung's work, resembles Buddhism in that it treats suffering as a natural part of life and explores what our suffering asks of us, what shifts in perspective, what growth, what responses in the world. Psychologist James Hollis writes about what he calls the swamplands of life. When we arrive in swampland zones, we are always faced with a task. That task demands of us something larger than we customarily wish to provide. We are implicitly asked, how am I to enlarge consciousness in this place? How embrace life here amid peril? How find the meaning in this suffering? We know that understanding painful experiences as a natural or normal part of life, which is the Buddha's first noble truth, can soften them for us. It encourages us to take a wider perspective, an aerial view, opening greater spaciousness in our hearts and minds. This view, which extends beyond our small selves, is acceptance. But we can accept things and still be pained by them and also work to change them. What about embracing life here amid peril? My shorthand for this is joy. Although Buddhism doesn't hold up happiness as the goal of life, I do think that joy matters. And actively looking for and cultivating joy in difficult times is a worthy practice. Not to do so seems a terrible waste, a kind of thanklessness and blindness toward the world, an affront to the everyday marvels that help us weather sorrows and give us strength to work for change. There's a passage in the Talmud that says something like, when we die, we will be called to account for every permissible thing we might have enjoyed, but did not. Leaving aside the culturally variable definitions of permissible joys, I wonder what account for means. Does it mean that we acknowledge them to these things we might have enjoyed but didn't? This could be challenging because often the reason for a missed joy is that we never even noticed it. We took it for granted, which is something we rarely do with our suffering. Sometimes we perceive the possibility of joy, but we don't allow ourselves to realize it because we're working to survive 
checking off an infinitely renewing to-do list, accumulating possessions in an effort to feel safe, or maybe sacrificing to a morality in which joy is either disowned entirely or somehow allowed to other people, but not to ourselves. Opportunities for joy may be easily neglected or dismissed, but the cost of doing so accumulates over a day, a week, and a life. I believe that this is one of the challenges that this time asks us to rise to. I remember uh, the teacher Darlene Cohen talking about coping with the intense and pervasive pain of rheumatoid arthritis by savoring each pain-free moment in which her foot was off the ground between steps. Instead of letting those moments be obliterated by the seemingly much larger and more significant experience of pain, she focused on them so intently that they became a kind of celebration. We don't think of it, but in walking, our feet leave the ground as often as they rest on it. So maybe Darlene was eventually able to make the ratio of joy and pain equal. Or maybe by giving more of her attention to joy, she was able to make it even stronger than the pain. These days, it's so easy to feel overwhelmed or swamped. I often wonder how the gender-fluid bodhisattva of compassion canon also called Guanyin and Avalokitesvara, among other names, feels when they hear all the cries of the world. How does their heart hold everything that those exquisitively sensitive ears carry? According to a legend recounted in the complete tale of Guanyin and the, and the Southern Seas, a 16th century Chinese novel, Guan Yin vowed to free all sentient beings from the suffering of samsara and strove diligently to accomplish this vow. Despite her unstinting efforts and many successes, there were always more suffering beings needing help. Redoubling her efforts to achieve her task caused Guan Yin's head to crack into 11 pieces. This is an early and graphic example of what we would now call compassion fatigue. Amitabha Buddha responded to this crisis by bestowing on Kuan Yin 11 fully functioning heads, thus enabling her to hear even more of the world's cries clearly. However, in trying to reach all of those whose sufferings she now heard, Guan Yin shattered both her arms. This was when Amitabha graced her with a thousand arms for which she's known. I love this story because it conveys the familiar experiences of inadequacy and powerlessness that sometimes accompany our compassion. And it also promises that our capacity to help grows in response both to the world's need and to our wholehearted efforts to meet it. Our feelings of insufficiency need not hinder us. Instead, they can activate our potential. Our vulnerability can be our strength. 
when our heads or arms or hearts break into 11 or a thousand pieces. That can be the beginning of the story and not the end. Even despair can be a reason for hope because life's brightest and darkest aspects, as we know, are always and completely interdependent. Thank you for listening. Um, that was a shorter talk than normal, but given that when I started, I felt I had no words, I feel okay about it. <laughs> um, please feel free to contribute uh, any thoughts, questions, comments. I would love to hear them. I was wondering if um, I want to be able to go over that again. And it looked like you had it in written form. Is there any way you can post that like on our, you know, on our Stone Creek site or something? Um, I, I think it's not the sort of tradition for people to do that. Um, and I may be wrong, um, but I usually do um, post uh, the, the text for my talks on my own blog. Um, and I'll, I can give you the address for that. And so you'll be able to find it there if that works for everybody. Can you give us that? Sure. Yeah. It's uh, polishingthemoon.com. Polishing the moon? Polishing. Yeah. Like polishing your shoes. <laughs> That's a, I didn't make that up, by the way. I need to give Dogen credit. That's uh, a line from one of his poems, um, which you can also read about on the blog. So, when Molly, when you spoke at the beginning about the bombing of Nagasaki, uh, I recalled something I read recently which was that Nagasaki wasn't the intended site destination of the bomb. It was a, an industrial city in Kyushu where there was uh, perhaps a little bit more uh, rationale about munitions or industry or steel production, but it was cloudy, mm -hmm. foggy, and they couldn't get a clear shot. So at the last minute, they, they were diverted to Nagasaki. So our cruelty is so often casual in that way. Mm -hmm. And that that lesson from that for me is that cruelty isn't uh, that's that banality of evil that that there's a much cruelty is is unthinking un, un Ill, unconsidered and yeah. that somehow to wake up to that in ourselves and our world is very important and very difficult. Yes, yes. Thank you. That's absolutely true. Um, what you're saying about the targets and the weather. Um, and I, I don't know, I found some casual cruelty in the writing on the bomb casing also, and the fact that people would be so proud of that, that they would sign the, the bomb. Um, yeah. So, and certainly I find that in our national leadership also, that the Brutality is not well thought out. It seems quite casual. Yeah. 
not saying that makes it better or worse, but um, makes it worse. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess you you know you could say well maybe if we thought more deeply then we would be able to deal with these impulses in other way in other ways. Um, yeah. So, right. So the when I was when I mentioned about the trauma studies, um, you know, that have investigated the impact of different kinds of trauma on people, and have found that the most traumatic kind of trauma is trauma that is deliberately inflicted by one person on another. So there's something about that element of somebody knowing what they're doing um, when they're doing something terrible that makes it so much more traumatic for the person who is victimized. Molly, I wanted to thank you for talk and um, and for recognizing um, the anniversary of, of Nagasaki and, and Hiroshima and um, and just you know that that from from your Dharma seat just drawing our attention to that collective history and, and the pain of it. And um, thank you for the the offering. I can't remember the guy's name. No, maybe Gutenthal or something. Yeah. But the, the, the reframing of fair with what what felt to me like like almost like a utilitarian reframing of despair. Like that there's some agency in despair is is a really helpful uh, possibility for me. <laughs> And, and just the perspective is really, I just, I just am really grateful for you offering that. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to say the same thing, Molly. I really found your talk um, actually very hopeful. And I liked, I, I really did like that the despair part. You mentioned, um, the swampland and um you know it just feels like that is an suffering is an opportunity to find meaning and to open up and it's an it's really an opportunity for growth and i have to hang on to that thought because there are times when it's pretty intense and there are times when i say what do i do now and i don't know but that thought when you're not there is almost like food for times of crisis when you are there in the swampland. So um, it's very, very uh, um, uh, inspiring, actually. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, if you're interested in reading further, uh, James Hollis wrote a, a book, which is not long, called Swamplands of the Soul. 
and um, he devotes each chapter. They're only a few pages each, but each chapter. Sorry is about that. Oh, sorry. That. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'll, I'll just finish saying this and hopefully um, Vicki can catch up. Um, okay, I, I'm caught up. Thank you. Are you caught up? Okay. Yeah. Thank so you. Each, each chapter of his book is devoted to a different, what we would call negative state, despair, loneliness, anxiety, uh, you know, depression. Um, and his reframings um, or reimaginings of these states are really, I found them very powerful and inspiring. So I, wow. I, would, I would recommend what, them. What's the name of the book again? It's called Swamplands of the Soul. By? By James Hollis. Okay, Page. thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Sure. Just wanted to say, even though nobody's responding much, again, I just wanted to really thank you so much for that talk. I found it really helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Holly. I appreciate that. I've just been thinking, yeah, I've just depressed these people beyond belief. (laughs) But, you know, I figure if the news and, you know, the reality of our lives isn't doing that already, I mean, I my contribution must be small in the overall scheme of things. Um, But thank you. Thank you. That was my hope. I just, I want to uh, ditto that this silence is not, um, is just, is for me, because there's so much to uh, think about, contemplate, and you touched me so deeply. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Yeah, Holly, I'd like to, uh, Molly, I'd like to also say I thought your talk was really um, uh, powerful. And um, I agree with Liz. I feel like I'm still digesting a lot of it. A um, couple of things I'd like to reflect and in, in, in ask your response for. One is um, uh, I just heard a really good podcast by Mal- Malcolm Gladwell about uh, the firebombing of Tokyo, which um, happened n- not that temporally proximate to Nakashima and, uh, or sorry, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, but um, is much less uh, paid attention to in the American consciousness, but actually we killed a lot more people. Um, and it was horrific. Um, and uh, I think that um, part of the banality of evil is um, uh, these kind of mythic rationalizations. Uh, I'm not going to take a position one way or the other, whether these were ultimately things that should have happened or shouldn't have happened. But what's clear to me is that we have to continue to hold them in our heart and realize the ongoing suffering that we are part of. Uh, as a 
a nation because of it. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is I just loved what you said about uh, joy and bringing intentionality to that. Um, very often it feels to me like that's uh, like joy is a kind of grace when I'm open enough you know, to actually experience it. And uh, one simple thing uh, is sometimes the way the light comes through uh, our window in the morning, it's this soft golden light. And it just, it completely dissolves me is the best way I can describe it. Um, And I think that there's something uh, very profound in what you said about um, despair, actually, and its relationship to that kind of joy, because in both of them, you ultimately have to let go of yourself, like your, I need to be in charge here, kind of uh, routine mentality. So I'd love it if you, you know, if you agree with that, or what your perspective is on that. Yeah, I do agree with that. Um And I think a lot of what gets in the way of our not doing that is our ego um, and the agendas that it has for what we should do and how we should be. Um, You know, just a simple fact of like walking past a tree and not even noticing it because we're thinking about where we need to go. Um, You know, I, I have an apple tree in my front yard that I was sitting under only when people would come to see me so that we could do the social distancing outside. And I never sat under it, like just by myself to (laughs) to experience it. And then one day I had to be out of the house while Chris was cleaning and stirring up dust. And so I went and sat under the apple tree and like those two hours were the happiest hours that I've had, you know, in a long period of time. You know, I saw so many little creatures going about their business and, you know, a mother bird bringing food to her babies and a lizard and just all kinds of stuff happening, you know, and it was, um, it made me feel small in a way that was wonderful, you know, that all of the things that I worry about um, every day uh, connected with me and then with the world, you know, branching out from there. But then there's this tree that's been there for who knows how long Um, and the birds going about their business and um, that I could have been noticing that every day that I've lived here, you know, and I haven't been. Um, So, yeah, that was a Talmudic moment for me where I was like, I'm going to have to explain this. Why, you know, it took me this long to sit out under the apple tree. Um, So. But I don't think that should be one other thing that we, you know, berate ourselves with. So <laughs> just, you know, an encouragement to joy, but not like a beration to joy. <laughs> this is me. That's the part that really lit me up too in your talk. It really uh, was, I, I don't know quite how you said it, but how I took it in was that like, uh, you know, the, the joys that we miss, something about the joys that are everywhere that we don't, you know, that we miss. And I just sort of got this image of like this like treasure hunt of joy out there (laughs) that it's like um, that opportunity. It's not something to to wait for to come to us or uh, that's that we have to make happen. It's like there's just these moments of joy if we if we look for the treasures. And that just really was very uplifting. Thank you.
I'm curious um, if anybody has anything that they want to offer as like a way that they have been finding joy or just more generally coping with um, everything that's been happening over the past six months. This girl yesterday. So she is bringing joy. I've never had a dog that felt comfortable enough to kiss. And she, she's, we're having a good time. Good for you. And you will be the auntie, as you know. Yes. Looking forward to you being free to come and babysit. <laughs> so this is Bryn, everybody. We have Bryn. <laughs> thank you. Glad you asked. <laughs> and the other thing I wanted to say is thank you for your talk. When you say you don't know what to say and you start with that, it's it's just amazing what what is there and takes the focus and comes forward. And the piece of um, Kuan Yin's, even Kuan Yin breaks apart and doesn't feel capable <laughs> and has to keep expanding. And it's, um, it's, it's never a done deal. So um, anyway, lovely to listen with you and to feel with you. And I greatly appreciate your sharing your sensitivity and your poetry and your wide mind. I also think it's important about that Kuan Yin story that she had help. She got help. It wasn't on her completely. Um, I always appropriate Kuan Yin as her, um, despite the gender fluidity. So I just want to apologize for that. But, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was another aspect of the story that struck me, that she was not this lone figure in the wilderness. Um, although it seemed like maybe the, the Amitabha's gift of the 11 heads was kind of a mixed blessing, you know, because then there were more cries to be responded to. So, you know, help can be that way. <laughs> we're never sure how it's going to work out. Um, but yeah, that, I've always loved that image of Kuan Yin, but, and I've always wondered, okay, so you, you have all the arms and so you can see She's about doing and responding as well as hearing. But then I, I'd never heard or read anywhere about how she feels about this. How, how does she handle it? How, you know, hearing all the cries. I mean, I just, I'm undone just by the fact that this is August 9th, you know, and, and what that means to me. And, and uh, so that, that's a real, that, that's a very rich question for me. I confess while we were meditating that I was really looking out out the window at this blue jay that's come to the feeder and is just like, <laughs> you know, making all sorts of noise. So there was real joy there. 
<laughs> Good. I'm glad. <laughs> Molly, thank you. I was uh, like, I'm glad everybody's saying so much because um, it helps to have other people articulate my feelings. <laughs> thank you, everyone. Um, one thing that, like a lot of people, I'm doing a lot of walking, just taking long, long walks. And uh, one thing that I've noticed is that um, I always notice things. I always notice the flowers, the house paint, the tree, the crack in the sidewalk. Um, but since the pandemic and this walking that I'm doing now, I'm, um, I'm finding myself, I'm stopping. Like when there's a tree or a flower, or beautiful house color or something, I'm stopping and taking and allowing what probably is just seconds to just absorb it instead of just sort of peripherally noting it as I walk on. And I'm noticing that that makes a big change um, because even just taking a walk, sometimes uh, it can be very unaware that there's a driven quality to it. Like walking, uh, taking the next step. So just the simple act of stopping has been um, marvelous and very joyous because those seconds are the times that whatever has been noticed flows in instead of just noticing and keep continuing to walk and propel myself out of that moment, it allows it to be flowed in and absorbed. And that makes a big difference. So that's a, that's my little contribution to the discussion. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for that. Jude. That's, I think that's huge. Um, I need to do that more. That, that would be, that would be a great vow. To, to stop and to really um, savor those gifts. Thank you. Thank you again so much, Molly. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, you know, and uh, when we were talking about well, what gets in the way of of joy, you know, and um, and despair, and feeling all of our feelings, you know, and I, I really feel it's this gaining idea, it's this agenda, you know, of of the ego of like what I need to do right now, what this moment is supposed to be about, and um, if we could find a way to flow more with what the moment actually presents to us, um, then I think we would have more peace and harmony. Um, but it's hard because we have all these ideas. 